This week's question is this. If I have a, a new nature, why do I still struggle with sin? Any of you ever wrestled with that? Um, yeah, all of us, right? I mean, we'd be lying if we said otherwise. If I have a new nature, why, why do I still struggle with sin in my life? And it's a question I've asked over and over again throughout my life. I've been a Christian most of my life, and I uh, and I, I'll be very honest with you, I still struggle with sins that I struggled with when I was a young man. And, um, I mean, I'm still a young man, but, um, but, but there, are, there are some things that I've struggled with, temptations and sins in my life that, that are just perennial. They're just always there. And um, maybe you understand what that is. Here was the original question that, that prompted this this morning. Someone wrote, in Romans 7, Paul discusses sin as though, it were, as though it were an entity unto itself. Are sin and the sin nature the same thing? Or is sin spawned by our sinful nature? Who is pulling the strings that cause a professed believer to sin? Is it primarily the natural outgrowth of a sin nature resident in our mortal bodies, Satan, or a combination of the two? Is it ever reasonable to say, the devil made me do it? <laughs> Great question, great question. You know, I wrote this down at the just before I, I stood up here in the first service. You know, it just struck, struck me as I was thinking about the message that, that one of the reasons we struggle, one of the primary reasons that we struggle is that, that we think that um, our powers of repentance and faith and obedience happen to matter more than the perfection of Christ's atonement on our behalf, the perfection of the sacrifice that he offered for us. And, and when, we, when we make that mistake, we will always struggle because it's not about what you and I do or don't do. It's about what Christ has done for us. And I hope that that really comes through in this message. So we're going to look at the passage, the, the chapter that, that uh, this person asked about, and we're also going to look at the one ahead of it, Romans Chapters 6 and 7, and if you'll turn there in your Bibles, I want to let you know that um, Paul writes like an attorney, and um, especially in this. And so um, you're going to want to really pay attention. I hope you'll take notes this morning, uh, get those Bibles open or turn them on or whatever it is you need to do. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and 7. If you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, sixth book of the New Testament, just ahead of 1 Corinthians, just after Acts, Romans chapters 6 and 7. And in Romans 6 and 7, Paul identifies two problems with regard to this struggle that we have with sin. And the first is this, how can I achieve victory over the old nature? Um, and, and interchangeably, Paul uses the, the terms um, flesh and the body of sin, or more literally, literally the body controlled by sin to describe that old nature. How can I achieve victory over the old nature? And then the second problem is how can I live to please God when everything I do, even the good stuff, is tainted by the old nature? So, I mean, you, for example, I mean, you find yourself doing some act of service or you're engaged in some ministry and it's always laced with pride, isn't it? Look what I'm doing. And always the, the sin just kind of creeps in there. It's just attitudes that are wrong. And we know that that is true about ourselves. So, so let's look at that first problem then. How can I achieve victory over the old nature 
or the flesh, the body of sin? And this question is raised and answered in chapter 6 of Romans. And there are three key words that that unlock that answer as Paul provides it for us in Romans chapter 6. And those words are, first of all, know, and then consider, and then present. Know, consider, and present. Let's look together at how Paul uses this first word, know, in the sixth chapter of his letter to the believers in Rome. And by the way, this isn't a fluffy little sermon this morning. This is Romans. It's not romance, it's Romans. If you want romance, go to the Song of Solomon. How can we who died, Paul writes, to sin still live in it? Do you not know, there's the first word of that use of that word know in this chapter, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let me just read that again, that sentence. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul wants his readers to understand here that, that when, we re- by, when we receive uh, by grace God's gift of faith and we trust in Christ, we are united with him. Say with him. With him. We are made one with him. You say, well, Christ died 2,000 years ago. Yes. And, and, and the The teaching of the New Testament, especially of Paul's teaching, is that as we put our faith in Christ, his death became ours. His burial becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. Because by faith, we are united with him. We're made one with him. So that when we receive the baptism of the Spirit that we talked about a couple of weeks ago as we trusted in Christ, that baptism was a baptism into his death. We died with him. In the same way then, when Christ was raised from the dead, because of our union with him, we were raised to walk in newness of life. We're united with him by faith in his death as well as in his resurrection. So water baptism, when you're baptized in water, that's a a dramatic rehearsal, if you will, of, of this real baptism of the Spirit into Christ, because baptism is a a graphic portrayal, water baptism is a graphic portrayal of our death to sin, our burial with Christ, and our resurrection with him to live an entirely new life. And Paul's second use of the word know in verse 6, or is in verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. There's that phrase again, with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now there's that picture of sin as a slave master. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now again, Paul's emphasizing our union with Christ, with him, by faith, and he wants us to know that Christ's death and resurrection resulted in our emancipation from the power and authority that sin and death held over us. The gospel is an emancipation proclamation. One of the reasons that that genre of music that had its origins in the, in the southern plantations of the United States and that became known as Negro spirituals, one of the reasons that, the primary reasons that those Negro spirituals are pervaded by the theme of heaven is that those slaves knew that unless they were able somehow to successfully escape, their only way out of slavery would be their own death. And Paul is saying that our old slave master, sin, no longer has any authority over us because we have died with Christ. And don't fail to miss that phrase in verse 10, once for all. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, all of us, all of humanity. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And because that's true, Paul urges us in verse 11, now here's the second word, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word translated consider in verse 11 is logizomai. It's the, the root of our English word logic or logical. And, and Paul wants them to consider what he has just been saying and reason through it to its logical conclusion. And this is simply that step of faith that says what God says about the Bible, says about me in the Bible, is now true in my life. I am crucified. I am buried. I am raised with Christ through my union with him by faith. This is faith in action, resting on the truth and the authority of God's word in spite of your circumstances or in spite of how you feel. It's the logical and practical application of the words of the song we've been singing lately here at LifePoint, that I am who you say I am. I am what you say I am. I am no longer a slave to sin. That's a past reality. It was real in my life. It is no longer. In Romans 6, 12 to 14, he goes on, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin pull the strings of your life. You have a choice now. Do not present, there's that third word, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The law is no longer your master. Grace is now 
your master. Paul tells his readers in verses 12 to 14 that what that logical conclusion means here in practical terms. You don't have to go back to slavery. There's, there's no requirement for you to do that. Uh, you no longer have to um, present your body as a vehicle for unrighteous behavior. Sin's no longer your slave master. You, you no longer are required to live as if it is. You now have a choice. You once didn't have a choice. You are free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, you are free at last. And that freedom is the result of God's grace. You, you no longer live in the fearful state of condemnation. This, this is really the constant condition of those who live under the oppressive rule of the law. But you now live in the joyful freedom that, that's the exclusive experience of those who live under the rule of God's love and grace. Now what does Paul mean when he says that we are not under law, but under grace? Well, to be under law, simply defined, means that, that we must do something for God. To be under the law of God means that we need to do something for God, to please him, to to merit his approval, to, to reach his righteous standard. But to be under grace means that God has already done something for us. The operative word in religion is do, and the operative expression, the operative term in genuine Christianity is done. We no longer live under the law, so do is not the issue. It's now done. We live under grace because of what Christ has done for us through his death and burial and resurrection. And see, too many of us are living really defeated lives because we're burdened with religious rules and regulations and resolutions, not realizing, not realizing that it is impossible, impossible to find holiness, to attain holiness through our own efforts. It's tragic to see believers trying to please God by living under law striving in their own efforts to please God when the new position that they have in Christ and the new power of the Spirit make it possible for them to enjoy the blessings and the freedom of grace. And Paul explains this in chapter 7 then through a series of, of arguments that are presented in twos, uh, uh, couplets, if you will, duets. And, and he provides an answer to that nagging second question, how can I live to please God when everything I do even the good stuff is tainted by the old nature. And then the first of these twos is found in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Two husbands. Two husbands. Now having alluded to slave relationship in chapter 6, Paul now in chapter 7 employs the marriage relationship to illustrate our relationship to the law. He makes the point that just as the marriage covenant is discontinued at the death of one of the partners and the surviving partner is free to marry, so the law is binding on a person only as long as he or she lives. In the traditional marriage ceremony and the vows, we use that expression till death do us part till death parts us, till one of us dies. And that's what Paul is saying here. The law is binding on a person only as long as he or she lives. Romans 7 beginning at verse 1. Or do you not 
know, there's that third use of his word know, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So our first husband was the law. That's what Paul is saying here. Before we met Christ, we were bound by the law. We were condemned by the law. Um, It was not the law that died when we were rescued from sin. Instead, through our union by faith with Christ, we died to the law. The law was an, an abusive husband. We'll get into more of that in just a moment. Keep in mind that though Paul is speaking of the Old Testament law, he, he could just as well be speaking of any kind of legislation that any of us might employ uh, to try to manage sin. And for a lot of Christians, that's, that's the Christian life. It's just sin management. Trying to keep sin curbed, trying to keep, it, keep the lid on the sin so it doesn't get out of control pleasing God by our own efforts or a minimum to please others through our outward appearances of whatever, you know, spirituality. Um, what a terrible way to live the Christian life, just always trying to keep the lid on our sin. Well, our second husband is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second half of this illustration, Paul says, uh, we are no longer married to a system of regulations. We are married to Jesus Christ. The law is no longer our husband and no longer has any authority or headship over us. Of course, Paul's using a a metaphor here, but a legitimate question that a thoughtful person might ask at this point is, then why did God give the law if it doesn't produce holiness? I mean, what was that all about? The law is just massive, right? And if it doesn't produce holiness, what purpose for that did God have in mind? Well, Paul made two discoveries that answer that question. And they're found in verse 14, where Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So on the one hand, those are the two realizations, two discoveries. The law is spiritual. I'm of the flesh sold under sin. Well, what does it mean that the law is spiritual? It means that the law, like all scripture, came by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The law is from God, and it's therefore perfect as God is perfect. And Paul captures that in verse 12, where he writes, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. 
So law is spiritual, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. But Paul says, I, speaking of himself, but speaking of all believers, I am carnal, sold under sin. Well, what does that word carnal mean? Does any of you eat chili con carne? <laughs> Beans with meat. That, that word carnal just means fleshly or fleshy, made of flesh. In other words, the law is spiritual and we are not. The law is perfect and we are sinful. You and I are un, utterly unable to obey the law of God. But notice what else he says about the law. First of all, in verse 7, he says the law reveals sin. It reveals sin. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So wherever there's a command, then there's the realization of sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul wrote, For by works of the law, and this is a verse you should memorize, by the way, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law came the knowledge of sin. So, First purpose of the law, there is to reveal sin. The next thing Paul says about the law is that it energizes sin. It gives power to it. Romans 7 verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So not only did it reveal sin, but all of a sudden just, sin just proliferated in our lives when we understood the commandment. Now, take, take any commandment. For example, um, you may eat of any true, of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but of, of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and e uh, good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the first commandment, right, in the Garden of Eden. That was the, the very first. And what did they do? Just made a beeline to that tree. I mean, basic biblical psychology 101 right there. You tell your kids, kids don't eat that dish in the refrigerator because I spent all morning preparing it and we're serving it to our guests tonight. You go to serve it to your guests and half of it's gone. Why? Because you told them not to. What's up with that? Sin the commandment not only reveals sin, but it energizes, it proliferates it. And then look at verses 9 through 11. It gets worse. The law kills and deceives the sinner. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Great, wonderful. Paul says the wage of sin is death. Romans 5.20, Paul wrote this little statement, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Well, that's just great, isn't it? In another place, Paul said that the law 
was a tutor to lead us to Christ because in our utter inability to keep the law, it led us to a Savior. That's really the thrust of this passage. In verse 13, the, the law reveals finally the sinfulness of sin. The extreme sinfulness of sin. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. (laughs) Wow. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Well, following that defeating experience, I mean, here's Paul the Pharisee, right? I mean, they were, they were all about the law. The, the Pharisees were the ones who were the, the you know, the, the, the keepers and defenders and of the law. I mean, they, they were the spiritual elite of their day, and Paul was one of those at one time. In Philippians 3, he, he shares his religious pedigree, and then he says, but whatever was, lost, was, was gained to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Moreover, I count it, I count it as Complete loss in order that I may know Christ and may be found in him having a righteousness of my own not derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. Well, it must have been a humiliating experience for Paul when, when he came to the realization that the law was spiritual but he was of the flesh and there was no way in a thousand lifetimes that he would ever keep the law. And so he concluded that there are two principles uh, or laws that are operative in the life of the believer. Two natures indwelling the child of God. And the, the, the first principle is the law of sin and death. And again, he refers to that as our old self, the flesh, the body controlled by sin, the old nature. And the second principle is the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Verse 14, again, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Any of you resonate with that? (laughs) I do not understand my own actions. For, again, it gets worse, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. You have to kind of think about that statement for a moment, don't you? If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good because there's a different desire. For I know, uh, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Going on in verse 21, so I find it to be a law, a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, that with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now everything I've said this morning is prelude to this section. Kind of been, you know, waggling on the tee before taking my first drive. But here it is. Verse 14 really sets the stage for the remainder of chapter 7. You know, and some people argue that, that what Paul expresses here in verses 14 to 25 cannot describe a born-again Christian, a genuine Christian. And I want to say to you this morning that that is exactly what the accuser would like you to believe as well, so that he can prevent you from experiencing and enjoying the freedom that's yours in Christ. Stay with me here. Verse 22 in particular is covenant language. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Delighting in the law of God, delighting in God's word is not the attitude of an unbeliever. Let me read to you, have you ever read Psalm 119? It's like the longest chapter in the entire Bible. I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. You'll be glad about that. But, but it's all about You know, David's talking about his love of the word of God, and he just goes on and on and on. But listen to how it ends. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. And then verse 176, the last verse in the psalm, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So he spent 175 verses praising the word of God, the law of God, the ways of God, the precepts of God. And he comes to the end and he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. What's up with that? Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Paul is echoing David. In this passage, which is written in the present tense, Paul expresses the conflict between what he wants, what he desires, what he delights in, and what he nevertheless does, which is not what he wants to do. And he's not portraying an unbeliever. This is someone who is made new in Christ. This is someone who is spiritually mature. This is a seasoned believer. I read somewhere this week this this statement that men perceive themselves to be sinners in proportion to their understanding of the moral requirements of God's law. In other words, the more of the moral requirements of God's law you know, the more of a sinner you're going to understand yourself to be. And since that is true, it should be no surprise to us then that the most mature believers are always the ones who feel most intensely the struggle between the spirit of God who lives within them and the flesh, the sin nature, that also continues to indwell them. There's a humility that arises from that. So you know, this is not an unbeliever. This is Paul, who, is, who referred to himself at one point as the least of the apostles, and another place he referred He described himself as the chief of sinners. This is honest, personal 
assessment as he speaks passionately of his consciousness of the remaining residual power and presence of indwelling sin in his life still there, still dictating his behavior that's the opposite of what the Spirit desires and what he himself desires. Told you this wasn't going to be a fluffy sermon. I mean, this is just real. And Paul writes this in a sense like an Old Testament lament. You've heard of the book of Lamentations, but and it's complaint, really. That's what a lament is. In the first lament, in verses 14 to 17, Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That's the first lament. The second one is in verses 18 through 20. And basically, Paul just kind of restates this, rearticulates his divided condition. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And some might read verse 20 and say, Well, that's a cop-out. That is like saying the devil made me do it. That's what some people would say. They're saying Paul's denying his responsibility, his his accountability, his culpability for his own conduct. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. He's giving us a straightforward, honest identification of the fact that there is an alien principle residing in him. And the third lament is in verses 21 to 23. and, And here he finally answers in a definitive manner the question of why it is that you and I struggle with sin. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in in my members. So if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you are regenerate. You are born again. You are a new creation in Christ. You've died with Christ. You've been buried with him. You've been raised to walk with him in newness of life. You have a new transformed nature. And that nature is eternal. It's incorruptible. It's imperishable. It's being made new in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's desiring holiness. It's delighting in God's word. And that new nature, make no mistake, is now the real you. I've heard some people say to me, you know, when I've complimented them on something, and and, and maybe it has to do with their moral character, they'll say, well, if you knew the real me, you might not say that. But see, this is now the real you. This is the one that survives. This is the one that lives forever. This is the new nature. In fact, your struggle with sin, your disappointment with yourself, your frustration with your own double-mindedness is the surest indicator that you have a new nature. That that struggle is going on inside you. But the old you, your sin nature, is still present within you. Let's call it the resistance. And it wants to take you captive. It wants to hold you back. It wants to resist the work of the Spirit in your life. In his letter to the believers throughout the Roman province of Galatia, Paul described this inward conflict in these words. He says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary 
to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. There's a constraining factor. And then having declared that intense warfare, having confessed that, just revealed it very honestly, the rage is within him. Paul expresses his anguish in verses 24 to 25. Wretched man that I am. You, you, you may have been there in your own life. You may be there today. He's a wretched person that I am. Double-minded person that I am. Torn person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death, this body that's controlled by death. And here's his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You say, well, that's not a very encouraging conclusion. Well, maybe not, but it's a real one. And I love the fact that Paul isn't blowing any smoke in our face here. Or, or, or you know, kind of submitting us to some pie-in-the-sky kind of positive thinking. Who will deliver me? Where's my deliverance come from? This past week I was online and I happen to see a picture and I honestly don't remember where it came from but somebody might have posted it on Facebook but it was a, a woman who was snorkeling and as she was snorkeling she was swimming through just garbage I mean just trash everywhere and I thought what a great picture of the Christian life you know that this world in which we live is pretty screwed up and, and, and then it gets inside of us. We have a sin nature in us. So it's not just out there, it's in here. And, and there's a war going on. And we live in a, in a polluted environment. But as I wrote to James Appleby, Evan and Eric's dad, this past week, I said, what, what joy to know that this veil of tears in which we live is not the final answer. It's not the final destination. See, we will live with this struggle until we're with Jesus. And it's not the one we choose, but this is the world we live in. And so Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. He's talking about his inner being. I, I long to do the will of God. I long to serve God. I, love, I long to please him in my life. But with my flesh, I know I'm just going to keep on screwing up until he comes. And then he arrives, after all these twos, he arrives at one conclusion in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And he says, there is, read this with me out loud, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How good it is to know in the midst of the struggle that our struggle doesn't condemn us. And there is therefore now, now, in the present, today, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of what Christ did. Christ is the one who delivers us from our wretched condition. You know, I was speculating in the first service in, in, in the message that, you know, what if, you know, someone came up to you and on a Sunday morning and patted you on the back and said, hey, how are you? And you said, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Wouldn't that be an encouraging response? <laughs> but that's our real condition, isn't it? And that's where we live. And, and we need to encourage each other and, and to know that uh, this life is hard. This Christian life is not for cowards. And, and, and it's a struggle, and it will be until Jesus comes. So keep on keeping on. Be steadfast, as Paul wrote, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep on keeping on, keep on walking, and keep allowing him to have his way in your life to the degree that you are able. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, uh, it is real. It speaks right into our lives, right where we live, right into our, the, the depths of our human condition. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for, for sending Christ in the likeness that Paul writes of sinful flesh. He came uh, looking like us, not fully like us, but looking like us, living our, wearing our flesh. And he became our one single perfect substitute. He became our representative and, and hung on the cross in our place, bearing our sins in his body and, and dying our death. And we thank you that by faith we're united with him in that death and in his burial and in his resurrection. And that we know that one day we will see him again and in his presence. And all of that struggle will be over. And we will be saved not only from the power, the penalty and power of sin, but we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.